Hi, this is Stephanie Fay, and this is season two. Thanks for joining. Hello, and welcome to season two, episode 10. I want you to imagine yourself in a certain scenario, and I'm going to give you several scenarios. What I want you to think about in each of these is how you experience that moment and how each of these differ from each other. So I want you to imagine making a silly face, however this might look for you. might be opening your mouth wide, sticking out your tongue, raising your eyebrows really wide, scrunching up your face, whatever it is. Imagine first making a silly face at a rock, how you would experience that. Now, imagine making a silly face at a dog or a cat, and what would happen? Now imagine doing this with a baby, looking right at you, making a silly face. Imagine making a silly face at a stranger, just walking by and all of a sudden looking at them and making a silly face towards them. I'm not recommending you do any of these things. (laughs) just want you to do this in your imagination. Now imagine this with a really good friend of yours. And then imagine it with someone like a coworker or boss particularly someone who might be in a what you would consider a higher-up position than you, if that exists in your life. And just think about the difference of what happens in each of those scenarios. So what this episode is going to focus on is what I'm going to call social frequencies, or you've heard me say a few times, sociobiological signals. I want us to really understand how much we are expressing at every single moment, not just when we are with somebody else, but even when we're on our own. And this type of signal includes so many things that we'll go into in this episode, but just quickly, some of those will include body posture, facial muscle movement, where your eyes are gazing, what your mouth and eyebrows are doing, and a few of those kinds of things. And there's two important points I want to make about this. The first is that I am trying to bring a bit more of the different ideas that might be informed by neuroscience or neurobiology and nervous system kind of science, but to bring it back into our awareness as actual visible and audible and mechanical, as well as chemical. But in this episode, I'm focusing a little bit more on the audible, visible, and mechanical kind of signals that we transmit out and that we're detecting at every moment as well. And that humans are very, very complex feedback systems for us to know what the signals are that we are sending out. Having another human in front of us And the various ways that they are going to receive our signals, which are based on their history and a lot of really, really complex social factors, gives us a massive amount of information about how our data is being received by others 
And this then can help us, in a sense, complexify our own understanding of ourselves. And so the reason why I had you compare making a silly face to a rock and then a dog and a baby, a stranger, etc., is that first of all, we need to understand that we often have something called anticipatory postural or mechanical adjustments that we make in different settings, which requires a a really sophisticated awareness. But it also means that our past and our past experiences can make us move and speak and look in certain ways that are going to create different responses in other people. And the different schemas that and mental models that we have created are going to play a role in that. So depending on what our experiences have been with babies and strangers and friends, etc., all of that is going to play some role in those anticipatory mechanical and postural adjustments. But the other reason I want to bring this up is because I also want to bring some of our awareness back into how a lot of what we understand about our internal state and neurobiology, how that actually translates into something in our actual day-to-day lives and interactions. Because a lot of you listening to this may love understanding different aspects of neuroscience and neurotransmitters and neurochemicals and all that kind of stuff. But what can be really helpful is how does that actually manifest as a type of movement or something that we can bring more awareness to that is actually visible to us or audible or something we can sense in terms of how we are making adjustments within our body. And for those of you listening who also want to bring a lot of this kind of information to clients, patients, students, different audiences, what I have found in my own experience speaking with many, many different age groups and different types of cultures and educational backgrounds is that some people will love to hear the more scientific and almost conceptual ways of understanding our brain, which we really can't know. You've heard me say this before, but we can't know when our anterior cingulate is activating in a certain way. We don't know that there's certain brain activity that is reflecting a hypo or hyper-coherent kind of activation, et cetera, et cetera. But we can know what our finger is doing in that moment. We can understand where our eyes have narrowed onto. We can feel and know what our breath is doing in a moment. So the more we can talk about these very visible, tangible, audible, mechanical types of signals and movements the more we can really truly become aware of them and test all of this stuff out for ourselves. And so that's a really big reason why I want to bring a lot of this kind of neuroscience information back into the field of the body and the brain. And you've heard me talk about that. If you haven't heard season one, episode five, I talk about that. This idea of embodied cognition. So in this episode, I'm going to be pulling from a few different papers and researchers One of them is Beatrice de Gelder, and she talks about emotional body language uh, in a paper called Towards the Neurobiology of Emotional Body Language in the journal Nature, which is a highly respected peer-reviewed journal. 
as well as anticipatory postural adjustments from Jean Maschen from the French National Center for Scientific Research, as well as the Embodied Mind, Cognitive Science and Human Experience from Varela, Thompson, and Roche, and also a fascinating paper entitled Positive Emotions Broaden the Scope of Attention and Thought Action Repertoires by Fredrickson and Brannigan. I'll also be integrating some of my earliest research work at the Phelps Lab for Neuroscience Research at NYU, where I helped with postdoctoral studies that were looking at disgust and stereotypes and neuroeconomic decision-making and unconscious biases and things like that. And we used facial electromyography as well as galvanic skin response and heart rate for that. And I'm also going to include, in terms of how I'm compiling all of this information, work that I also did at the Department of Defense and different aspects of the physiological markers and the types of signals that get emitted and that we can measure with different instruments in terms of detecting lies and stress responses and things like that that we can use instruments for, but humans can also do some of that as some of that work as well. So for example, border agents who who do certain investigations on people who are coming in to the country, they can get trained on eye gaze detection and different types of things like that. So we are gonna go through a bunch of that stuff in today's episode. Thanks for joining. So the importance of seeking and expressing signals related to our internal state, one example of this would be that when an infant is in a state of distress or something is going wrong internally, there is no vocabulary yet to be able to express that to a caregiver. So it's very important for us to have other types of signals whether that's vocalization, which is a cry or whimper, whine, those kinds of things, or using the facial muscles to express the internal state, as well as different body movements. So we need to understand that we as adults have a very strong focus on verbal communication, but there's so much information that is being transmitted beyond and under and above those levels of verbal communication that we have been practicing, in a sense, for a very long time since we were born. It's also important for us to seek these signals in others because a person's internal state is also going to give us a clue as to whether they may be harmful, helpful, or irrelevant to us. If we are looking to achieve a certain goal and we are able to detect in somebody else that they are feeling weak or sick, then, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, then that's important information for us. But we're also talking about signal seeking and expression for intended action. So that's maybe a little more obvious why that's so important for us. We really need to pay attention to the different signals that we, that somebody else is projecting out in terms of their intended action towards us. And they are doing this with us as well. So we may not have a high level of conscious intention in terms of what these actions will be towards each other, 
But this is where these ideas of anticipatory postural and mechanical adjustments might come in and where we may have some expectations that are based on our past is one example of what our intended action is going to be in every single interaction that we have. Because the thing is, is that we do enter every interaction with some type of expectation in a sense. And these expectations are based on all the different experiences we've had. And so as we enter different social interactions, there are going to be tiny just microscopic movements of our head, our shoulders, our arms, our hands, as well as how our eyebrows scrunch or don't, as well as how our eyes, the microscopic, the tiny movements of our eyes and where they are shifting to is really, really important part of the interactions that we have with others. So in that paper that I mentioned, positive emotions broaden the scope of attention and thought action repertoires. What they find is that negative emotions narrow and focus the field of attention in very specific ways, whereas positive ones open them up. So when someone is in a negative emotional state, maybe a state of uh, self-protection or fear, defensiveness, distress, their eyes are going to narrow onto very specific things. And some of those things are going to be determined by their past. So other research that I also was involved in was in detecting emotions. And there's plenty of other research on this as well, but that some people who've had different types of family experiences and backgrounds and attachment and attunement experiences with caregivers may need to, in a sense, from their past, focus on very specific features of someone's face to determine their internal state because that was incredibly important information. So it may be looking more at a frown or trying to seek whether there's a hint of a smile or it may be in the eye area. It may be looking at their hands or what their body is doing. So depending on all of these past experiences we have, our eyes and our attention are going to focus either narrowly or broadly on the person in front of us. And a narrower focus is also going to narrow the thought action repertoire, meaning that if we are narrowly focused on just trying to detect something specific about a person, and again, most of this is not very in our conscious awareness. It's just happening because of the different things that have happened in our past and what was critical for us to pay attention to when we were little, as one example. That as we narrow into, into whatever that feature is or mechanism that we're, we're looking for to give us that kind of information, it also narrows the different types of behavioral responses we can have because we haven't opened up to all the different information of that person. So if we're looking for, and, and again, this is where the expectation from our past can influence us to look for something and possibly perceive it even if it's not necessarily being projected out by that person. So we may detect, for example, a neutral face as negative. And so there's different cognitive testing that also looks at that, at emotional bias kind of thing. So some people might detect neutral faces as angry, and they're doing this by focusing on specific features of a person's face. And because they don't see something, or they see something that isn't there, they perceive it as angry. So that narrows their thought action repertoire because they're going to respond to what they think is anger 
when it may not be there. It's not opening up their repertoire to also include the possibility that the person is not actually angry, or there's another explanation to why their face looks the way it does. I'll just give you an example from myself is that when I've given different presentations in person, there have been times where I will look in the audience and I will see someone that looks almost angry as I'm speaking. And then I've had the experience where that person who looked really angry came up to me at the end and said they were enthralled or fascinated throughout the entire presentation. And they were just very, very concentrated on what I was saying. So it's a facial expression of concentration that scrunched their eyebrows or did something to their face that I also took as my own point of self-reflection that I perceived as possibly being angry. And so as I gained more experience with that, I started to understand and I opened up, I broadened my attention as, for example, I interacted with audiences to see that potentially a serious looking face, there might be other indicators that say that they're actually really paying attention or simply that my filter was maybe perceiving something that wasn't there. So those are some ideas about the idea of signal seeking and signal expression, that we use different movements, whether it's our eyes, our body, how we move, how our face even will turn a certain way, how our facial gestures are are used. And all of that helps with us being able to seek out signals from someone to extract very important information about their internal state or their intended action, and to express very important information of our own internal state and intended action. And in the next section, we're going to talk about signal avoidance and signal suppression and how that relates to mental health and interpersonal and personal challenges. So in terms of this idea of signal avoidance and signal suppression. I'm going to go into signal avoidance first. Signal avoidance is a term I'm using to describe a behavior that I have seen over the years, particularly in people who are experiencing a lot of challenges in mental health and in their personal lives and different interpersonal challenges, where they are not spending time developing a very important skill, which is interoception. And interoception is the idea of becoming very aware of our physiological state and the different sensations that are occurring within our body that are related to many different things. And I'm actually going to go much more in detail into that, into the concept of interoception in a future episode. I really just wanted to touch on the concept of it in terms of how much people attempt to distract themselves or avoid feeling certain things. And part of us avoiding feeling certain things that come up in our body. And again, I'm in this episode, I'm really focusing a lot on what's happening in our social interactions that may lead to some of these physiological sensations. So someone slamming a door, someone saying no or yes, someone um, looking at someone angrily, someone yelling, someone lying, or you hear someone talk about you in a certain way. These are all different experiences that I am very exposed to as I work in a clinic where I'm working with people who are having really severe challenges in their life. And so these are things that I know are coming up constantly all day, every day for them, and that affect 
their posture. I even notice that it affects their brain waves and things like that as we do different neurofeedback sessions and heart rate variability. But one thing that I notice that happens to a lot of people is that when different distressful social situations have come up, that they turn to something that will numb it or just help them avoid feeling whatever they need to feel. So those can come in the forms of going onto the phone, different types of substances that change their state, that alter their state, staying very hyper-social or hyperactive in a sense to not stop and feel what's happening. And it's this is really challenging because for a lot of people, feeling the feelings are going to open up something that's going to likely go very deep. And in the next episode, I'm going to go more into how much of these signals are actually touching on what I'm going to just call a bundle of nerves that come from a long time ago that have to do with really deep core beliefs about ourselves. And so because these are so deep and can be very, very painful, often related to our family of origin, a lot of people don't want to go there. And so they avoid these signals that are coming up. So some of these signals are the internal signals that we feel as a result of social interactions. And some of these feelings come up when we're on our own, but often still in relation to something that happened earlier. This is not always very conscious. So a lot of the work that I do with clients and students when I used to work as a counselor was trying to backtrack and figure out the different patterns of why they felt like throwing their phone across the room, things like that. But a big part of where I see challenges happen is that when people continue to avoid these feelings and these internal signals that are coming from all these social interactions, the social frequencies, they don't get to the root of why it feels so painful. And because of that, they don't upgrade or update their algorithm to be more flexible. There's a term called cognitive flexibility. They don't update the algorithm that they have in terms of some of these core beliefs of them not being lovable or them being continuously rejected or whatever those things are because they're not taking some of that time to feel the sensations and understand where they come from. They don't update the model. And what happens is that they then bring that model and that anticipatory those anticipatory postural and mechanical adjustments, which can also be where their eye gaze is going to go and how their ears are going to tune into something specific, how their posture is going to display something to another person. They're bringing all of those anticipatory adjustments into their interactions and those adjustments are based on their past. And so it creates or recreates a very repetitive pattern in their social interactions. They continuously get rejected. They continuously feel unloved because they are displaying something that is coming from their past. And they aren't creating a sense of that flexibility and broadening of repertoire to what they can bring into social interactions. So that signal avoidance is just numbing ourselves, distracting ourselves, not letting us sit with some of the physiological sensations that may be coming up for us that are due to different things that have happened during the day. Then signal suppression um, can be self-induced or other-induced. So other-induced 
signal suppression is when there is a dynamic, generally a power dynamic, where one person uses their authority or the fact that they they are being relied on for resources, which could be money as a set in terms of a salary, or you know when it's a caregiver that you know they are being relied on for basic needs, as well as a size difference, physiological strength difference. Weapons can also create that power dynamic where one person may, in a sense, have the power to suppress the signals of the other. So if you are in a dyad or group where one person has that type of power and is using it in a way to threaten, whether it's threaten physical violence or threaten to take away resources, and this can be very, very subtle, just reminding someone, for example, of that person's ability to give or take things from them, using postural adjustments to show that they are bigger or taller or whatever that is. The other person in that dieter group will then use the, the, a signal suppression mechanism, in a sense, to appease the other person. And this can take a lot of different forms. And I want to go into some of those in another episode, but this can look like defense in terms of aggression. It can look like cowering. It can look like what they call the fawning response or a camouflage type of response where you're trying to appease. In one way or another, the other person is blocking possibly the signals that are actually coming from them where they would like to speak up or they would like to say no or they would like to tell the person to stop or they would like to whatever that is, express something that would actually relate to their own power and how they want to deal with that situation in a way that would be beneficial to them, they suppress those signals by contorting their facial expressions to instead of, you know, expressing distress, they contort it to smile or contort it in some other way. They contort their voice, their body posture. They're doing something where they're actually, in a sense, suppressing the signals that would potentially be very different in a different type of power dynamic. And the sig- what they are suppressing is leading them into a state that is not necessarily ideal for them in that moment. So doing something, for example, that they don't want to do or not being able to express how they feel Signal suppression can also be self-induced, and that can come from a history of being in a power dynamic where, for example, an authority figure was using some types of threats of either violence or resource, you know, taking away type of stuff that the person then now, again, going back to what I was originally saying, brings in those algorithms into new situations that may not actually be a threatening situation, but because there's enough history of it, their body may detect, their brain-body system may detect signals that lead them to perceive that a threat is happening. And they then will just suppress different signals in order to, in a sense, survive that situation. So that's one where the other person is not necessarily suppressing, let's say, my signals, but I will suppress my own signals. So that's self-induced suppression, where I might contort and appease or do some sort of thing that is not actually aligning with my true desired action in that moment with that person. So both of these, the signal avoidance and signal suppression, what's interesting about all of this is that something that I see in the quantitative EEGs that I have been looking at for 
a few years and how this correlates with self-reports and behavioral observations of people who are having mental health challenges and interpersonal and personal challenges, as well as research uh, from, for example, Stephen Porges on the vagus nerve and specifically part of something called the nucleus ambiguous is this idea of asymmetrical activity. So in the brain maps of people, for example, who report depression, we can see a quieter kind of slower wave activity that's asymmetrically dominant in the left prefrontal cortex. We may also see in anxiety, it it can also look like very fast frequencies on the right prefrontal when someone is more on the anxious side, although it's often that high frequency activity across the frontal cortex. But the asymmetrical activity is something that I definitely see a decent amount of in terms of brain maps and particularly in the idea of depression. And what I find interesting about that and why I brought up the nucleus ambiguous is that it also, so that's part of that, the vagus nerve system, it also is lateralized. And what lateralized means is that there is one side that specializes in some type of feature or function and the other side specializes in something else. And in the brain, there is very clear lateralization of many different features and functions. And so in the brain, part of what we see a bit more dominant, and again, this doesn't mean that one side of the brain does something and the other is left out. It's all communication across all of these things, but one might just have a little bit more activation or specialization on one side. And so what we see in the brain is that language and certain motor commands or motor motor functions are lateralized, are a little bit more dominant on the left side. And on the right side, we can see some features that are related to emotion regulation. And in the nucleus ambiguous, we see lateralization as well that has to do with the pharyngeal and laryngeal muscles that are related to vocalization and how we use our voice as well as the facial the muscles for facial expression so what's fascinating to me about that is there seems to be something about a suppression of those very complex systems we have to express our internal state and intended actions using our facial muscles and our voice and so i don't have research yet on on this relationship with asymmetrical activity that I'm seeing in the brain maps. But what I can say behaviorally is that the people who are reporting depression have very flat facial expressions, very flat voice. And as they improve, and we can see some of that in the brain maps, is that there is an increase in the expressiveness of their facial gestures and their voice, and in more of an animation of their body language and posture. So I do believe that, and this is also based on my own personal experience, that when we stop, when we suppress ourselves from expressing our internal state and our intended action, that this can result in some type of maladaptive mechanisms that might occur in our brain-body system that we could see in the brain, but we may also just see in the nervous system in general, and that may really affect our mental health and our relationships. And so in the next section, I want to go into signal flow and signal awareness and how this can be really helpful for us for our personal well-being and our relationships. (music) 
So in terms of signal flow, I also have used the word signal coherence, but I like the word flow for now. You may have experienced that feeling of really feeling understood by somebody, where they really get you. And what I have experienced, and maybe you can reflect on this as well, when you are with that person who you feel very understood by, there is, in a sense, an opening of these communication channels. You are not suppressing yourself. You're not trying to monitor and then subtract certain things. You're not contorting yourself in any way. You're not contorting the signals, and you're not trying to suppress their signals. So there's a very open sense of channels of communication flow, where as you say something, it's received by the other. This doesn't always mean it's positive communication. So this can also come in the form of if you're angry, you're able to express that anger. But as you do that, as you use your vocal cords and your facial gestures and your micro movements of your body and your eyes and your eye gaze, etc., you're expressing anger or frustration to the other person, but it's being received by them in a more broader, open way where they're actually taking it in, kind of inputting it into their system, and then giving you a response back that gives you more information and more data. So that would be in contrast to them turning away, shutting down, or trying to suppress your signals by using those different tactics that I was talking about in terms of signal suppression by using some sort of dominance kind of tactic or even a passive aggressive type of tactic, which can be a guilt trip or what I call emotional coercion. I'll go into that in another episode, but an actual, in a sense, broadening of what they're able to receive and then being able to give something back. So when I'm talking about signal flow, it doesn't only mean that it's happy and positive. It means that we are staying open to the information that's being exchanged. And sometimes that information is very uncomfortable and maybe they are critiquing us in some way. If we can stay open and broad in our our awareness to just receiving in and seeing how that might resonate with something within us, then we can integrate it and then feed something back to them and it keeps those channels open. So that's what I would call signal flow. And that's where we're truly using these very sophisticated mechanisms of facial gesture, and vocalization in ways that are not suppressed or contorted. We are, we are truly aligning with what our internal state is and how that flows out. But I do want to add a, a small caveat to that, and I'm going to go into that into the next episode. So sometimes when we think we are expressing our true feelings, those true feelings are so based on our past and so based on a nerve, those bundles of nerves from some sort of deep wound that comes very often from our family of origin, that it's not actually about this moment as much as we think it is. It's not as much about the person in front of us as we think it is, or the situation at hand. as a lot more depth and a lot more scar tissue, in a sense, that is being rubbed up against that is based on something from our past. So that is something that we really need to bring into our awareness as we are expressing ourselves. Um, We might be full of rage at somebody and in a situation where we're interacting with them, although I'm talking about signal flow and I'm talking about openness of communication, just letting out rage to somebody may not actually be the most adaptive communication in that moment because what we have to understand is it might not actually be as much about them as we think it is. And I'm going to go way more into that in the next episode. 
So what I just want to get to in terms of this idea of signal flow is that if we can just use our vocalization, which can come in the form of words, but it can come in different sounds as well, crying and sighing and those kinds of things, and our facial gestures as well. If we can do that um, with people live and we can find ways to notice our different patterns as we do it and how that gets received, that's all important information. But we can also create these channels of signal flow on our own. And I think this is where it's really powerful as we try to build up different skills for self-regulating. If we can use these very complex and sophisticated mechanisms of expressing our internal state outward, we in a sense build up our ability to nuance and complexify our ability to express it. So let me give you an example. If you can journal and write how you're feeling or record something and you can, you know, put it up somewhere or you can create art or some type of mechanism where you're taking what you're feeling inside and you are creating a visible or audible or mechanical signal that expresses it, you are fine-tuning this system that may get you better and better at really being able to express what you are truly feeling. So it won't be these, you know, two or three very narrow categories of good or bad, it might be very nuanced as slightly irritated or bored or overwhelmed or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is this whole idea of us talking about name it to tame it, using our words, et cetera. What we're doing is we're trying to really evolve these systems to get better at expressing and creating these signals that can then be more accurate for another person to receive. So the more we can use these channels of signal flow, which are going to come in the form of our voice, our facial gestures, and our hands as well, our body too, and our hands in terms of creating graphical representations of our internal state, which can be art or words, all of this is going to create, is just going to kind of work out these channels of signal flow, all these different mechanisms in our body. And then what that feeds into is the last concept I'm going to talk about, which is signal awareness. And this is, in a sense, our most highly evolved ability to bring a sense of conscious awareness to what our signals are. So these signals are going to be, again, in the form of what we project out and what we detect. So the more we become aware of what it feels like for our posture to be a certain way when a certain person walks in the room, when we enter a different situation when we're talking in a certain way, what our head is doing, what, how our eyes are looking. Are they narrowing in on something specific about a person's face or the room? Or are we allowing it to broaden, for example? How, is our, how quickly are we moving? Are our fists clenched? What are, what are our eyebrows doing? What's our jaw doing, etc.? All of these things are part of those postural and mechanical adjustments that we make. And the more we become consciously aware of these, the more we can become experimenters in a sense too of noticing that when, for example, you straighten up, how does that create a different feeling inside your body and how does that maybe even translate into a different way of thinking? When you allow your eye gaze to stop narrowing in on something very specific and you allow it to broaden and look around, how does that change your internal state and then how does that translate into you speaking in a different way? 
How does you breathing a little more slowly and noticing the feeling of your belly expanding change the way you are speaking to somebody in a certain moment? All of these things are part of how we just become more aware of our signals, our social signals. And I will go more into how this translates on a more internal level in a future episode on on interoception. But just as a quick overview of that section, signal flow and signal awareness are about us really embracing how incredibly sophisticated and beautiful these mechanisms are for us to have this really complex way of being able to express the tiniest nuances in what's going on for us to somebody else. And then as we stay open and being really truly present to every signal that we're receiving with them, we get to have incredibly complex data about them as well. And this creates that feeling of being truly understood where we're not narrowing in based on our expectations, what we think they're going to say or what we think they mean or all the assumptions we've made. We broaden out our attention and allow ourselves to really be open channels, open receptors of their data, allow it to integrate in our system, and then allow ourselves to use these different mechanisms we have to express what we are experiencing inside. So a quick overview of this episode is that we have signal-seeking and signal-expressing mechanisms that are very complex, and we use these to express our internal state and our intended action in visible and audible ways. When we suppress these signals, either we are doing this because we ourselves are suppressing them in some way, or someone, because of a power dynamic, is leading us to contort or suppress our own signals, or we are avoiding these signals and avoiding understanding them by distracting ourselves all the time. These can possibly lead to us not being in our most optimal state of well-being. And what can be helpful for us in terms of our well-being and our relationships and just our evolution as a species is to create more awareness of these signals and how they are manifesting in our little micro-movements and what we're doing and to allow ourselves to create ways of complexifying our ability to express ourselves and create this kind of signal flow whether it's on our own and we're creating things and expressing that way or with our interactions with other people and staying open to the different signals they're sending without narrowing in our focus too quickly on things that might actually be very based on our past in ways that are more profound than we may consciously realize. And so just some reflection questions to end is, what are some of the mechanisms that you think you could maybe bring some more awareness to in terms of how you express your signals So maybe what you do with your face or your body, how quickly you move, what your body posture is, what your voice is like, as well as what you do to seek signals. So how do you possibly narrow your focus? Are you shifting your eyes to something specific when you're in interactions with others? Do you possibly have some expectations that you use your senses to then detect and you may miss out on other signals? And then what are your experiences with signal suppression? Has that occurred in your life where you felt like you contorted or suppressed your signals because of some sort of dynamic that was happening? How do you avoid 
the signals that you may have in terms of just the physiological sensations that might occur in your body that might actually relate to an interaction that you've had or a belief that comes from a long time ago that you try to avoid as much as possible. And then who do you feel a sense of open signal flow with? What does that look like in terms of behavior? So if it's a good friend, what does that look like when, in terms of even your body posture, your facial gestures, your voice, how is it with that person when it feels like there's very open signal flow, like they really get you, you feel very understood? How does that look in terms of a manifestation of you and the signals that appear, in a sense, because of that state of psychological safety? And then finally, what can you do to increase your signal awareness? So this might be setting an intention to notice when you go into certain difficult interactions, to notice what your hands might be doing, what your posture, what your voice, what your face, even if you just focus on one thing at a time, to notice what happens in different situations. And I often find the challenging ones are the ones that we really want to improve the most. So those are ones where we could bring a lot more awareness. And notice if you have a very narrow type of awareness or if it can if there's a way for you to broaden it in some way. So that's the episode. I hope you found it helpful. I think it was a bit longer than usual. Um, and if you have any questions, you can email me at hello at stephaniefay.com. And I may still have a one spot open for coaching in September. So if you're interested in that, just go to stephaniefay.com slash consulting. And you can also check out my YouTube channel, Stephanie Fay, my Instagram, Stephanie F. Fay. And I really appreciate you listening. And if you can leave a review and subscribe, that also really helps me out a lot. So thanks for joining.